You're listening to Manx Radio, and I'm Judith Lay, welcoming you to the podcast of the Manx Sky at Night with Howard Parkin. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. And once again, it is time to say faster my good evening and welcome to Howard Parkin, who joins us for this month's edition of the Manx Sky at Night. Howard, good evening. Good evening, faster my Judith. It's great to be back here. Well, I don't know, the weeks just fly by. Don't they just? And the stories pile up. They do. Now, still top of the list to talk about is something we started last month, talking about the Aurora. Indeed, it was amazing because I left the station last month um, having literally just um, been talking to you about the prospects of seeing some Aurora. I had a good look round because, of course, we've got a great view of the Northern Horizon here in Manx Radio. Didn't see anything in the sky. In fact, it was cloudy. And I remember thinking, oh, we're not going to see anything tonight. Got in my car, drove home. Woke up next morning. It didn't bother looking at my phone with all the aurora alerts. And, of course, there'd been an auroral display seen all over the Isle of Man. Pictures all over the place. It was amazing. And then again, it happened the following night as well. What happened, technically, is we had an auroral storm. Literally, it was called a geomagnetic storm. And it hit level six. Now, level, normally the aurora sits around levels two and three. It's visible from places like Norway and Iceland and places like that. Um, you don't see it down here or even in northern Scotland. But this particular activity uh, peaked uh, Sunday, Monday, and we got up to level six. And uh, people saw it all over the place. Pictures, even now, if you look on Facebook, go to the Aurora page of Facebook, there's pictures all over the place of Peel Castle, uh, Bradder Glen, uh, Shivana Plantation. Loads of people saw the Aurora. And indeed, there's been a few sightings since, but that was quite spectacular. And I've got to say, unexpected, although I'd been saying literally 10 minutes earlier about this is the best time of the year to see the Aurora, each side of the Equinox, which of course was a few weeks ago now, last week in fact. Um, but just keep your eyes peeled and don't as I do think because it's cloudy because what I think happened on the Sunday night was it was cloudy everywhere but then the clouds cleared on the northern horizon. So you've really got to have a northern horizon to see decent displays of aurora. Um, I didn't think it would clear. Nobody thought it would clear but then obviously people living in the north and on the west coast of the island saw this and uh, some great photographs. But a word of warning, the photographs always lie. There's no other word for it. A photograph does lie when you come to take a picture of the aurora. What you see with your naked eye will be a white glow, possibly with a tinge of green in it. You won't see the spectacular greens and reds you see on the photographs. The camera is open, the lens is open for longer, you've got a much uh, bigger aperture, all this sort of stuff. So unless it's a real massive aurora storm, which that wasn't, it was a good one, but it wasn't that massive, um, the colours will be much more muted and not as spectacular. And that disappointed a lot of people, but the photographs, well, they're amazing, aren't they? And uh, long may I continue, and uh, I'll certainly be keeping my eyes peeled for aurora, probably for the next few weeks, but now as we get, now we've gone past the, the hours gone on, um, we won't see aurora now probably until September, but Never say never. I remember years ago seeing the aurora in June. John Moss said to me something about what's that in the sky, and it was an auroral display in the southwestern part of the sky. So um, always look at, keep one eye on the sky. You never know what you're going to see. It, it is centred on the North Pole. It's centred on the northern magnetic pole of the Earth, but the auroral oval, which is what we call it, sits in the Arctic Circle. But then if there's an increase of activity on the sun which impacts the Earth's atmosphere, that aurora oval expands. Like imagine a, a thin donut and a little bit of a big fat donut. Well, that's what you get. 
And yeah. the, the curious thing is, someone once said to me, and I, I, I had trouble getting my head around this, if you're at the North Pole, where will you see the aurora? In the south. You're in the middle of the donut, and you're looking towards the southern sky rather than the northern sky. Yeah. I couldn't get my head around that, but I've not been to the North Pole yet, so we'll forget that one. N- n- well, yes. There's not many <laughs> places where you haven't been, but it's, there's nice to have a little list of things yet exactly. to be, yet to be exactly. discovered. And so, talking of discoveries, so what are we going to be looking for in the sky in the coming weeks, Howard? Well, of course, we had, again, I spoke about this last month, about we had this spectacular conjunction between Jupiter and Venus in the evening sky on the 1st and 2nd of March. Well, Jupiter's now disappeared into the evening twilight and it can't be seen, uh, but Venus is still dominating the western sky. It's rising earlier and earlier now, so as a result it's getting higher and higher, and as a consequence it's visible now in a very dark sky, which is... Not that usual for Venus. When it gets to its maximum distance from the sun at what we call maximum elongation, it does rise in a in a dark sky. And it, it's almost bright enough to cast a shadow of Venus. It's that bright. And you can actually get a shadow of a Venusian shadow if you stand with a white wall behind you and Venus is casting a shadow onto it. It's amazing to see and you can just about make it out. But Venus is going to keep dominating the sky now right through till about August time when it will go in between the Earth and the Sun. And it's going to get higher and higher and higher until I think June, I think it is, when it's at its maximum distance in degrees from the Sun. Then it will come inside the orbit of the Earth and the Sun, as I say, and go between the Earth and the Sun in August. We've now got less pure darkness, haven't we? Yes, of course. Which, which is lovely. Dark, yeah. Which is, is lovely. We love the light nights, but you not so much. No, we like the, the cold, crisp, frosty nights of winter are the best for astronomy. And of course, we have the wonderful displays of the winter stars, which we've spoken of before. You've only got to go outside now when it's dark, probably about 11 o'clock or even midnight, to get a really dark sky. And you'll notice straight away there isn't the profusion of very bright stars around. There are still some very bright stars, the star Regulus in Leo and Spica in Virgo, for instance, but all the majestic winter constellations, they're now setting in the west or have gone uh, set in the west by now. Um, but they're still worth looking for. And of course, identifying the constellation of Leo is special to me because I'm a Leo. Although we don't do astrology and we never will do astrology, oh, I, I am a Leo. I thought we were just going to no, 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 stray no. that. Oh, no, that, well, not a chance. Dear listener, please note, I didn't bring that subject <laughs> up. <laughs> Tell you what I am going to ask you about, Howard. Um, when last we were talking on the, the final Sunday of February, you were looking forward to going in to talk to some school children in the that north of the island. And uh, did you have a good time? Oh, I had a wonderful time. Went to Solby School and gave them a talk. And it was really nice because... I was saying earlier about the fact that we did this talk and um, the kids just love it. And what I, I do lots of talks, as you've probably gathered, and um, usually to adult groups, but I also, for school, once my contact details, I'll go and give them a talk if I can fit it in and I'm happy to do it. So I went into Solby School, gave this talk, and uh, they were so excited, the kids. All the hands go up for questions. They're so, children are so infectious with their enthusiasm. And the teacher, the, the bell went for lunch and she said, oh, out in the playground, but can we stay and ask Mr Parkinson some more questions? And they did. But what really brought it home to me was the following day, I was at a, a retirement association lunch and a chap came up to me and said, are you Mr Parkinson? Yes. Didn't know me, hadn't met before. And he said, my granddaughter came home from school yesterday, so excited. They'd had this astronomy man in and he was talking about the stars and she couldn't shut up about it. She said she was so enthusiastic about what you'd been telling us. So he wanted to thank me. And, you know, school children, if you can just inspire one school child at a visit like that, it's worth it. And uh, that's how I got into astronomy. I got in, into astronomy. I'm sure I've told you the story before about Yuri Gagarin. And my mum said, come inside and watch this man walking through Moscow who'd been into space. I was eight. 
man has been into space, and that's what got me hooked, and I've been on, hooked ever since. You're always saying this, these seven, eight, nine-year-olds are right. the ones who will have the chance to go into space. That's the thing. I always start with that. If you work hard, if you study hard, some of you in this classroom today will end up in space in the next 50 years. And they look at each other, oh, I don't want to go into space, or I do want to go into space, you know. <laughs> but, you know, the other thing is I had one child in particular, I, heard, I can't remember his name, and he said to me, are there different types of black holes? And he's a nine-year-old. Mm. So how would you explain that to a nine-year-old? I did. I mean, explained about supermassive black holes and smaller black holes and all the rest. But I thought, wow, for a nine-year-old to even know what black holes are. Mm. And then elaborated on the fact that they're not holes, they're solid objects, which you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to escape from because of the speed of light and all that scientific mumbo-jumbo. Uh, but trying to explain it to a child uh, and keep his enthusiasm, that's, that's the challenge. There's one last thing to talk about before we take our break, which is um, next month in April. At the end of April, before we have our next show uh, at the end of April, we have got the, I always call it the first of the meteor showers of the year. We do get a meteor shower at the Quadrantids at the beginning of January, but by the time we've realised it's happening, it's gone. Um, so the first true shower I always regard is the Lyrid meteor shower, which peaks this year on the 22nd of April. And this year, with the moon being new on the 20th of April, it means there's a very good chance of seeing some meteors in the eastern sky around midnight time. Not the most prolific of meteor showers, but always a good bet to see half a dozen or so in an hour. So get your eyes peeled around midnight, 22nd of April, a couple of days each side of that. And as I said, with there being no moon in the sky, we've got good prospects to see some bright and fast meteors coming from the constellation of Lyra. But remember, you don't need to know where Lyra is. Just look in the eastern sky because Lyra um, will be sitting on the horizon around that time of night so you'll see them streaming up from the eastern horizon heading towards overhead and round about so um, give it a look and hopefully you might see some some meteors from the Lyrid meteor shower but at the end of the day as you always always say just enjoy it exactly if you don't know the name of anything it doesn't matter doesn't does matter, it just enjoy the sky because on a crystal clear night even in April and this time of year I know it's not as good as maybe the winter when it's cold and frosty but the sky can be quite spectacular Get away from the lights. That's the biggest thing to do. Get away from too many lights, street lights or headlights of cars or whatever, and just enjoy it. Yeah. If it's warm enough um, or if you've got warm clothes, wrap up, get a garden seat out and just look at the sky and marvel at it. I just felt the garden seat was going to be mentioned there. <laughs> I did. I tell you what was what 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 I did that I found um, it was a real lesson for me. We were talking last month about Bardsey Island That's right. being declared a dark sky sanctuary. That's correct. A very very rare thing. There was also an article about light pollution because it obviously linked to the fact that there is no light pollution there. And it was showing the various stages, and it started off at you know what we'd call a pitch dark mm. with, with no pollution at all. But when it got to the final image of a city centre, it was daylight. Yeah, at night time, they were all night images, obviously. I could do a program on that just alone, Judith. The problems of light pollution, because I do lectures on specifically, and then um, there's a scale called the Bortle scale. Actually, it goes from one to nine, and nine is broad daylight practically in the big cities whereas one is pitch black in the middle of the uh, Atacama Desert or somewhere like that and the Milky Way we always say how the Milky Way is Manx Radmore Reed Gorry that's a story we've spoken about many times and you can't see the Milky Way unless you're at least level um, three or four and um, then you'll see the Milky Way with a naked eye um, but there's just far too much light and in these days of environmental consciousness and energy production and the cost and everything else why aren't we turning off more lights why aren't we doing more about it but well there was something else from the Bardsey Island story that I picked up on and they were saying of course you've got to have light you've got to be safe moving around you know you can't switch everything off oh I couldn't agree more appropriate and lighting is 
100% desirable. But what they were saying is that you can make the lights point down so they don't pollute the sky, but they keep you safe. uh, What we call cut-off lights, um, full cut-off lights. One of the worst examples of street lighting in the Isle of Man is in Santon. Middle of dark Santon, they've got these pedestrian refuges in the middle of the road, and they've got globe lights on them. Those globe lights are literally pointing as much light into the sky as they are onto the road. They look nice, yeah, great, but they're a total waste of time. They should have been fully shielded lights, and they've only been put in comparatively recently, so I don't know if anyone's listening about them, but please get them changed. I have nothing against light, nothing against light at appropriate places. There should be street lights at each road junction, but do we need rows and rows of street lights going up and down the TT course and all the rest in Douglas? No, we don't. We just need probably a, every third light is all that's needed. Well, we've got our dark sky status. Well, don't get me going on that one either. It's not protected, that's the problem. I can't say the right thing, can I? Not when it comes to dark skies, I'm afraid. I'm going to play you some music now. I think that's a good idea, Judith. I would never have thought that this lady would have produced some music that would be just perfect for us. Enya has recorded Everyone's Gone to the Moon. Streets full of people
Enya and Everyone's Gone to the Moon. You're listening to the March edition of the Manx Sky at Night and in the studio with me is Howard Parkin. And we're going to start with a Manx connection to the International Space Station. Indeed we are. In fact, I'd like listeners to go outside and, and give a wave. When they see the International Space Station going over, I want you all to wave. Because on board the International Space Station, he launched earlier this month, is a chap called Steve Bowen. He's actually the commander of the mission. He's the commander of Exhibition 66. And why is there a Manx connection with Steve? Because he was one of the crew of the STS-133 Discovery mission, the last shuttle mission of Discovery, and the Nicole Stott was on. So uh, they were guests of Timwold in 2012, and they came over. And Steve Bowen was one of the crew. And um, he's the first of the astronauts who came over in that year to go back into space. Steve, lovely bloke, so uh, personable, so friendly and so affable. And, uh, you know, just before he went into space, I sent an email just to congratulate him and give the best wishes of the Isle of Man Astronomical Society and the people of the Isle of Man. We remember you coming so fondly to the Isle of Man in 2012. And um, best of luck with your mission. I didn't expect a reply because he's, he's in the middle of his training, they're in quarantine, all this sort of stuff. But, you know, I got an email back from him that said he remembers vividly coming to the Isle of Man, how much he enjoyed it, how much he loved it, and he looks forward to coming again sometime soon. Quick question, Howard, about people who go into space. You know, once they've been, once somebody's been into space, say a couple of times, that they've amassed all that experience, are they really more valuable as ground crew to help with training and assessment and where, where does their real value lie then? That's a good question. I mean, there have been people going into space as many as six and seven times um, but most tend to do two or three times and then their experience is obviously invaluable for people on the ground. Uh, but some of them want to go back into space. Obviously, if they can, they do. Nicole did, did it twice. Steve Bone has done it three times now, for instance. No one's done more than six or seven but what used to happen, if we wind the clock right back to the Apollo era, when they launched a one Apollo mission, uh, the crew of that mission would have a backup crew. So those three astronauts went on the flight. The backup crew would then be the crew for the three flights further down the line. And they tend to use that succession idea. But of course, it very easily get drifts into all sorts of confusion if someone quits or someone um, decides to retire or take a different job. And um, of the five crew that came to the Isle of Man, Steve is the first one to go back into space. I know two of them, Eric Bowe and Mike Barrett, are still registered as official and ast- astronauts, the others are all retired. Um, the other problem is, of course, the, the gap. I mean, it's 10 years for, for Steve to fly again. OK, there's been a change of different types of spacecraft. Um, but it's um, it's very much down to personal choice. And, of course, um, I know talking to Nicole um, when she was when she did her second flight, I think she was thinking of doing a third flight but then decided against it. Maybe it was going to be too long or whatever. But I do know Chris, uh, her husband, was delighted when she retired but he never persuaded her to do it. I think I once asked an astronaut about the training and the thought processes. You're sitting there waiting to launch. There's so much in their heads from the training. They don't have time to think about the uh, what you and I would think about. I suppose... When you think about space tourists, though, that must be frightening for them. Um, if you're just sitting there as a passenger, um, that would be a bit more different. But uh, usually the training is so intensive that you don't have time to think. Well, no, but it, it's a very good point. Um, that if you go as a space tourist... You no, know, funny know. you mentioned it, because last month I nearly mentioned it to you when you were doing, you played Sarah Brightman's record. Sarah Brightman and Brian Blessed both 
trained or were in training to go up to the International Space Station with the Russians. Mm. And both of them, and don't know why, Sarah Brightman just suddenly stopped doing it. Mm. And Brian Blessed finished his training but never got allocated a mission. And they were both space tourists and they had to learn how to speak fluent Russian. They had to know the controls. They had to know how to get out the capsule if there was a problem. And there's mm. a huge amount of training. And the money to go into space isn't just covering the cost of going into space. It's to cover the training. And there's been lots of space tourists. We've got one on the island ourselves, Mark Shuttleworth. But space tourism, it's probably resurrecting a bit at the moment because of the efforts of SpaceX. It's just one of those things that if I had a few million to spare, I suppose I'd be tempted. But um, so If anybody's got a couple of million, you could do worse than invest it in Howard Parkin's space mission. I promise you I'll be enthusiastic. <laughs> I'm sure you will. The, the next technology step seems to be taken much quicker than once yes, it was. Those. Things that used to take perhaps 10 years in development, they seem to manage them in two or three years oh, now. Oh, absolutely. Well, a great example of that is the Artemis mission. We launched the unmanned Artemis last December, and the next mission is taking astronauts to the moon and back, round the moon and back, and the next mission, the third mission, only the third mission of the SLS and the Orion spacecraft is going to land people on the moon. Mm-hmm. They're not bothering with four or five or six steps. They're going to go straight from unmanned lunar orbit to lunar landing. And that is such of the technology and the way they do it. The slight downside to the speed of everything is that we, we get very excited about something and then there's the next big thing. We talked and, and, and we were very enthusiastic about for the James Webb Telescope. Absolutely. But it hardly gets a mention now because we're talking about so many other yeah. things. The James Webb is just breathtaking. The images that that telescope is taking. We thought Hubble was great. And the images from Hubble are fantastic and still are. Hubble is still going. But the James Webb is sending pictures. It discovered a small asteroid a few weeks ago. It discovered an exoplanet with an atmosphere. All these things are there in the scientific community, but they haven't got that buzz that the media want. And therefore, they're not getting publicised maybe as much until all of a sudden NASA will wake up and suddenly think, let's get a really good picture and put it out in in the media. You mark my words, in the next six months, there'll be a fantastic James Webb image suddenly appear for no reason other than it's about time we gave them up some more publicity. Slightly aside from the space exploration, um, one of the most dramatic news stories in the world of astrophysics emerged in late February and that was a team of scientists in Hawaii have come up with a theory. It has yet to be proven but it is a very strong theory and they think they've got it right. I need to explain a little bit about the content of the universe. We know the universe comprises 6% visible matter and 94% we can't see. The 94% we can't see is dark energy and dark matter. We're really getting to the astrophysics here, Judith. But we don't know where that dark energy and dark matter comes from. Well, these scientists have come up with a theory that they believe the dark energy is sourced from black holes. And if that is the case, that turns astrophysics on its head because that has finally given us an explanation for where all this stuff comes from that we can't see. When I say we can't see it, what we can see is the effect of this material in front of us with a light from a galaxy or a star behind it. And the light is bent. The light is actually bent by the gravity of the stuff we can't see. We don't know where it is. We don't know what it is. And this is the first sort of major bit of work that's actually come up with a credible theory as to where it comes from. And obviously... Black holes are a, a natural evolutionary process of the universe, we believe now. We think a massive black hole exists in the middle of every galaxy. And if those galaxies, those black holes, are emitting dark energy, you know, how can they emit dark energy when their the gravitation is so dense nothing can escape from them? But that's the theory that a form of negative energy is emitted from the black holes, and that causes the missing energy, which 
can then become dark matter. And that's what it's all about. And that story really is a mega, mega story. But it's only a mega, mega story to someone who's got an interest in astrophysics. And um, apologies for the boring detail, but that's really a huge story, which will be in all the scientific papers in the next few months. And you, Howard, as always, bring us the stories that matter and the detail behind them. And we are just about to be beaten by the clock. So in the last 40 seconds, what, what is something we've absolutely got to know? Keep your eyes on the news in the in the next few weeks because there's two potential missions going to take place. We've got the first Boeing Starliner. You may remember the Dragon SpaceX Dragon launched in 2020. Well, Boeing and SpaceX were vying to be the first one to launch. Poor Boeing didn't make it, and they're finally going to launch their first manned mission of a Boeing Starliner in April. And the other one is uh, they're also launching the Polaris Dawn mission. We're talking about millionaires and spaceflight. A chap called Jarek Isaacman is going into space in the Polaris Dawn spacecraft in April, hopefully. And that one's going to go further than any other spacecraft with men on board and women on board has ever been. And those both exciting launches taking place in April. I look forward to talking to you about them in April. Howard, we look forward to welcoming you back into the studio for the next edition of the Manx Sky at Night, which will be final Sunday of April. Faster my Howard Parkin. Faster my Judith, thank you. Stay.